Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty program. Well, today is September 11th. And of course, this uh, this is a pretty pivotal day in American history. I think it's safe to say that as we look back over the last 18 years, it was a turning point. Now, whether it was a good one or a bad one, I think the jury is still out on that. And I'm going to be sharing an article from uh, Jacob Hornberger. I'm probably going to wait until next hour to share this one with you. But um, 9-11 more than anything, solidified the destruction of our liberties here in America. And, and that's probably not something I should be saying, right? I mean, you know, the, come on, Brian, it's 9-11. Are we supposed to be, you know, maybe not wallowing, but at least uh, cloaking ourselves in the victimhood of a nation that was supremely offended and harmed on that day? It was an ugly day for a lot of reasons. And, and I will, uh, I'll never forget you know, the, we, we sat there, uh, it, it would have been about this time of the morning, you know, that I'm broadcasting right now that uh, I got the call from one of our sister stations and they were like, turn on the TV. You're not going to believe what's going on. And we started getting the news alerts and we just plugged into the network coverage. And the question going through everybody's minds was, holy cow, where does this stop? And it was so odd because uh, Mike McGarry and I doing our morning show there in St. George, Utah, um, you know, we we had a lot of fun. It never really felt like work. But that day there was, uh, you know, once it was clear that, who that wasn't an accident that a plane hit the World Trade Center because another plane just hit the other trade center, the other tower. It was like, wow. So what do we do? So we had our television on. We had the network news on. We'd break in every so often with updates, just, uh, you know, trying to keep people uh, appraised of what was happening. And slowly, so slowly, the folks coming into work in our building. And I mean, we had lots of we had counselors and architects and various, you know, real estate developers from all over the building. But uh, just one by one, people found their way to our studio and just silently kind of stood there lining the walls and just watching the TV with us. And every time we said, this can't get worse, it got worse. Starting with what? Now they're saying there's been an explosion and there's a fire at the Pentagon. And what? There's another explosion. Or uh, I believe the first news report said a plane has just been shot down, you know, in Pennsylvania. And we were just going, holy cow. And then the first tower fell. And then the second tower fell. And by then... You know, all the aircraft traffic was being grounded all over the country. And you're asking yourself, what do I do? My wife and my kids were uh, were off at a private school. So, you know, when I finally did get a lunch break, which was very, very late that uh, that day, first thing I did was go fill up the gas tank because I figured, well, you know, we don't know. Don't know what's going on. Went and checked on the wife and kids to make sure they were okay. And then it was right back to work. And the anger was starting to set in by then. The shock was starting to wear off. And um, it was pretty clear. Some people were like, yeah, heads are going to roll for this. Heads are going to roll. And yet we didn't really even have a clear picture of, of what, uh, you know, what it all 
was was leading to or what uh, what it was all about. You know, the information was just strictly coming through the news media and through official pronouncements. And I hate to sound like a skeptic, but you know what? I've learned since then that's not a real great source of information, or at least it's not as sound as, as we would like it to be. And I remember going home that evening. I didn't get off the air until after six o'clock that night. And and I just felt whipped. I felt like I had been beat on with a rubber hose and was just, oh, man, tired. And, and it was so strange because not that we have a ton of air traffic over that particular part of southern Utah, but there was nothing in the air. No planes anywhere. Everything was grounded. And as I lay there that night trying to sleep, and of course, like a lot of people, I was tossing and turning and you know, trying to uh, trying to get my mind around what uh, what was happening and what would it lead to. In the middle of the night, I hear a propeller plane flying over St. George, and I'm immediately, "Whoa, man! There's nothing supposed to be in the air." I later learned it was it was most likely a life flight, so some medical emergency. Apparently, they would still have clearance, but uh, yeah, it was it was definitely a day to remember. And maybe not in the the happy sense. But when we're faced with the the question of what became after, what became of us afterward? You know, um, it wasn't good. And it's not good. And so I I know a lot of people kind of today, you know, I'm flying the flag. I'm showing remembrance and I'm, I'm honoring the brave men and women who went and answered the call for help. Yeah, the firefighters, the police, those who, who stepped up to try to save others and lost their own lives in the process. And by the way, I think there was some absolutely heroic stuff that was going on that day. So what I will share with you a little bit later in the show in no way is supposed to diminish what they're doing or what they did or the sacrifice they made. They found themselves thrust into a terrible situation, and frankly, they, they answered the call with as much courage as, as has ever been seen. But there's a bigger issue here, and this is the part that I know some people are going to find, uh, well, could, could you talk about this another day? No, I think today's the day I want to talk about it, even though it might ruffle some feathers. We need to talk about how 9-11... And more particularly, the government response to 9-11 solidified the destruction of our freedom. Got a great article from Jacob Hornberger, and we'll get to that here in just a bit. Like I say, next hour. By the way, I'm also going to be talking with uh, Jeanette Finnicum. I don't know if you're aware of this, but uh, Jeanette Finnicum, or actually not Jeanette, but uh, a judge dismissed a lawsuit that had been filed against the federal government. And this was relating to the uh, the events up there in Malheur and, and relating to some of the events when uh, Lavoie Finnegan was killed. I believe Shauna Cox was one of the plaintiffs. Can't remember if Ryan Payne was also one of them, too. But um, the media is reporting this as well. Federal judge dismisses the uh, lawsuit in wrongful death or actually how did they put it i don't think they said wrongful death but dismisses lawsuit in in a finicum shooting totally different animals here folks and Jeanette can explain why I, I i know one of the concerns that she shares with a lot of other people is that the narrative is constantly being rewritten or promoted which which gives a, only a partial but but still false 
recounting of what happened up there. So we'll give her a chance to set the record straight to uh, to help uh, put on notice <laughs> those who won't tell the truth that, you know, that uh, the truth is still going to get out there, whether whether you like it or not. It's going to get out there. Let's talk a little bit about victimhood, shall we? Annie Holmquist has a terrific column called How to Change Victimhood Culture in a Few Short Years. Boy, if there was one place I would look for where we need to, to do an abrupt about face. And, and I don't even know that this is a political thing so much as it's being exploited by political operatives, but it's this victimhood mentality. Oh, I am so put out. And she has a great example here and, and some some really interesting studies that show what leads to that sense of victimhood and dissatisfaction with everything. That entitlement mentality. Annie Holmquist says her father lost his job when she was still in grade school, but she said due to an economic downturn and attempts to start a business, her family lived without a regular paycheck for over two years. And she says it was rough. We tightened our belts. We became experts in frugality. But she says one doesn't feel the big pressures of economic distress as a child. It's often instead the small trickle-down effects that are more noticeable. For instance, for the children in her family, having pickles and potato chips become rare purchases at the grocery store was clear evidence of the financial hardship we were going through. Now, she says we chuckle about that perspective now. It seems kind of trite and a little naive, but at the same time, she says, we're grateful for that experience because the delayed gratification and denial of those material items, although simplistic, taught us to be less demanding and more content with what we have as adults. And she says, apparently such an outcome is not unique just to her family. Writing in Psychology Today, Dr. David Bredehoft explains that children who grow up with delayed gratification experience more gratitude and more happiness as adults. Doesn't this just seem like common sense? By contrast, he says those who experienced overindulgence as children tend to have a greater draw toward materialistic values. They also tend to find less happiness in adulthood. Yeah, this makes pretty powerful uh, a pretty powerful case for not spoiling your kids. Uh, grandkids are something entirely different, but we'll come back to this article in just a few moments. This is Loving Liberty. Stay with us. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, 801-331-8113. So we're talking about how to change the victimhood culture in a few short years. This is from Annie Holmquist on, uh, inter- let's try that again, on intellectualtakeout.org. Fascinating. I had a very similar experience to hers in that uh, when I was uh, about, what, sixth grade, my dad was diagnosed with cancer. This was right at the end of the 1970s. And uh, I remember there being a pretty good economic downturn going into the 80s. But uh, my family was without steady income for about about five years. 
And man, I'll tell you, you feel it. You definitely feel it when when something like that's going on. But she said she was grateful for the experience because it taught her and her siblings delayed gratification and denial of uh, material items for them. Getting pickles or getting potato chips was that was a treat. And apparently this is not a rare outcome. Writing in Psychology Today, Dr. David Bredehoft says kids who grow up with delayed gratification actually tend to experience more gratitude and happiness when they're grown-ups. But by contrast, the ones who experienced overindulgence as children have a greater draw toward materialistic values and find less happiness in adulthood. Check out this, uh, this table that uh, shows how the ones who experienced overindulgence as kids tend to view life through a lens of discontent. And it's, for, it's called a gratitude questionnaire. And it has about six statements that they're asked to either agree or disagree with. So the statements are things like, I have so much in life to be thankful for. If I had to list everything that I felt grateful for, it would be a very long list. People who were highly overindulged as children will strongly disagree with those two statements. But adults who weren't overindulged as children tend to agree. They have a lot to be thankful for. They have a long list of things for which they're grateful. Now, conversely, adults who are highly overindulged as children would say, when I look at the world, I don't see much to be grateful for. Whereas those who weren't overindulged would say, no, I don't agree with that. To the statement, I'm grateful to a wide variety of people, overindulged, adults who were overindulged as children would say, no, they would disagree with that statement. They'd also disagree with the statement, as I get older, I find myself more able to appreciate people, events, and situations that have been a part of my history. Of course, the adults who weren't overindulged as children would agree with both of those last two statements. The final statement, long amounts of time can go by before I feel grateful to something or someone. Adults who were highly overindulged as children would agree with that, but adults who were not overindulged as children would disagree. Now, Annie Holmquist says, granted, we all fall prey to discontent from time to time, but in today's society, discontent and ingratitude are becoming mainstream. Nowhere is this seen more clearly than in the concept of victimhood. Someone doesn't agree with me. I'm a victim. I can't get into the college I want to attend. I'm a victim. I don't have a job that gives me meaning in life. I'm a victim. She says the late academic Richard Weaver since the coming of this trend in the 1940s, noting that it is the overindulged child who has never endured the discipline and struggle that it takes to become a man who spends his adult life blaming others for his circumstances. Here's how Weaver put it. Let us consider an ordinary man living in Megalopolis. The stereoopticon has, has, shield has so shielded him from the sight of the abysses that he conceives the world to be a fairly simple machine, which with a bit of intelligent tinkering, can be made to go. And going, it turns out, comforts and whatever other satisfactions his demagogic leaders have told him he's entitled to. But the mysteries are always intruding, so that even the best-designed machine has been unable to effect a continuous operation. No less than his ancestors, he finds himself up against toil and trouble. Since this was not nominated in the bond, he suspects evildoers and takes the childish course of blaming individuals for things inseparable from the human condition. 
The truth is that he has never been brought to see what it is to be a man. That man is the product of discipline and of forging. That he really owes thanks for the pulling and tugging that enable him to grow. This is the concept that left left in the manuals of this concept left the manuals of education with no advent of romanticism. So the child is now the citizen rather is now the child of indulgent parents who pamper his appetites and inflate his egotism until he is unfitted for struggle of any kind. Now Weaver goes on to say the spoiling of man always seems to begin when urban living predominates over rural in other words, when once man no longer has to labor and work hard for the basic necessities of life, he loses the spirit of gratitude, exchanging it for one of entitlement. It can be depressing to look around at our entitlement culture full of adults who play the victim and continually display an attitude of ingratitude. But this revelation of Dr. Bredehoft's should give us hope rather than despair. Here's her point. If we as parents and teachers become less indulgent of our children and instead begin training them to delay gratification and to value things that go beyond material goods, might the material or might the victimhood tendencies of society turn around in only a few short years? I actually think she's onto something here. And I think it will take a shift in how we see the world, a shift to where we really start to appreciate things that right now it's awful easy to take for granted. Now, I don't want to sound dramatic here, but, you know, the fact is you turn on the tap, clean water is going to come out. You go to take a shower today, it's going to be nice warm water. It's, it's not exactly a hardship. Now, driving I-15 traffic probably is still going to be the pits, but at least you're not dodging sniper fire, right? And by the way, I'm not suggesting these things have to happen for us to be grateful, but I think Annie, Annie, uh, I'm sorry, her name just escaped me, Annie Holmquist, I think she has a really good point here about we could turn this around in a very short time if people would stop playing the victim. If they learned how to delay gratification and value things that go beyond material goods. <sighs> okay, I'm going to suggest it for whatever, for whatever it's worth. I think this is going to happen, and it will actually happen on its own. But it will come as the result of, I'm choosing my words carefully here, some kind of a humbling event. And I want to make clear, I'm not wishing for anything like this, but a, a major economic downturn would help a lot of people sort out what really matters from just that superficial, oh, one of my three cars has a flat tire. Oh, my life is so hard. You know, it's like first world problems, right? I think it's going to take something that would humble us. And, and I'm going to I'm going to go here. The humility that I saw on September 12th of 2001, I think was authentic. I think for a lot of people, there was that, uh, that awful realization that, you know what, as sheltered as we have been from some of the atrocities that we've seen take place elsewhere in the world, we learned that uh, our nation and our people are not immune from those kinds of forces. And if somebody is determined to do something truly evil... They can reach us as well. 
And I saw a lot of political differences set aside for that time. I saw a lot of people who uh, expressed faith in God, humbled themselves, asked for his protection. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty to say this, but look what it took to move people out of the comfort zone and bring them to a place of humility where they were like, oh, maybe I should show a little more gratitude. So I think it can work. And I think it works best when we voluntarily choose to be the kind of people who delay gratification and and who value things that go beyond material goods. The only downside is if we don't humble ourselves, I think fate has a way of uh, humbling us, sometimes in unexpected ways. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Where shall we go next? Got a couple of interesting topics here that I wanted to bring up for you. Uh, One of them asks the question, what explains modern hostility to the family? Maybe we should start here. Because this is one of those areas where I'm, uh, well, I'm I'm caught in the culture war. I don't want to be there. I'm, I'm a... I'm a conscientious objector in the sense that uh, I don't want to be dragged into it. But you know what? There's really no safe place to sit this out. And it seems like the hostility toward the family, towards, yeah, I'm going to say the word normalcy. It's so strong. You remember a couple of weeks ago, I shared with you a little audio clip of a a pastor uh, going to Drag Queen Story Hour. A drag queen, drag queen story time at uh, his library. Now, I thought he was maybe from the South. Turns out he was from Chula Vista, California. Hispanic pastor who went and attended uh, this this drag queen story time. And, and the most disturbing aspect of the thing. Look, I know is, yeah, there's guy, gender bending guys dressed around, dressed like women and, you know, prancing around and, and doing drag queen kind of stuff. But the disturbing part was the tiny, tiny children, toddlers. And parents are there dancing with the kids and we isn't this fun and oh, isn't it great? And when when they finished the uh, story hour, of course, there was the announcement and everyone who wants to can have their pictures taken with Jasmine over here. You know, one of the drag queens. And are there any questions? And that's when the pastor stepped up and went, yeah, I have a question. What uh, what are you guys going to say to God? When he is judging you for what you are teaching these young children. Ooh, the look of, first of all, terror that came over their faces. Somebody actually is calling us out on this. And then immediately it turned to anger and defiance. And they shouted at him and they yelled at him and told him, get out of here. And they, they chased him out of the building there. Now, you may say, okay, Brian, it was the right message, but the wrong way to deliver it. I, I don't know that there is a right way to deliver a message that would say, how dare you try to visit your, your particular preferred deviancy upon children, innocent little children. 
How dare you make your vices their vices? But I think it did need to be said. And now apparently his uh, church was vandalized last week in the name of tolerance. Of course, uh, the forces of tolerance wrote uh, many, many filthy words everywhere they could with spray paint. Uh, they, they drew five sided stars and wrote Satan all over it. You know, I mean, just, you know, giving props, letting their boss know, hey, boss, we got the job done. So sickening. But according to the narrative that you and I are supposed to believe, the guy who said, how dare you teach your kids that, uh, that this kind of behavior is acceptable? He's the guy who's in the wrong. The people who went and vandalized his church, the people who were um, dressing and acting in unnatural ways in front of little teeny kids and the parents who brought their kids there to participate. Oh, yeah, they were totally in the right. Come on, get with the program. I'm sorry, but that to me sounds like reality turned precisely on its head. Let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Brian, I got an interesting uh, irony here to point out in all of this. What's that? And that is that how can we, on the one hand, have the government going after everybody for porn when we're pushing porn down the throats of little kids in the schools? When you know, at least the government, anyway. I, you know, obviously, I don't want to have any part of it. But the point I'm making is, is it's interesting how we'll go after um, government going after. Porn and uh, if they just find one little bit of porn on somebody's computer or something like that, they're going after them like stink on manure. And they turn right around. What do you call this stuff that the government is pushing in their schools? Well, that's, uh, yeah. No, I, I see your point. Yeah. So, I mean. But if we say it's okay, it's okay, right? Kind of like gambling. <laughs> if, if government uh, says it's okay, then it's no longer a sin. Well, this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about all the time when I say society is being socially engineered from the top down, and most people don't even know it. Just because you don't see your change agent right in your face doesn't mean that there isn't a change agent somewhere that's helping push these agendas down through all the schools and, you know, and uh, some of the... I mean, I, I don't know how anybody in the schools could still work in, the, in them places and push those agendas. That's the biggest thing. I mean, I know they're good people. I know good friends of mine. Uh, one friend of mine whose daughter is a teacher in the schools, she's trying to fight a lot of it, you know, the best she can, that kind of thing. But I'm just talking about people who would willingly just stand by and allow this stuff, and that includes the parents, too, that would allow this stuff to go down. Um, you know, it's... Um, it's beyond me, but the point of the matter is what I've been continuously trying to get across, and I'll continue to state all the time, we have to we have to understand that, yeah, does the Bible talk about man having a tendency to, um, to uh, lean toward darkness? Yeah, the Bible talks about that. But this, quite frankly, is social engineering from the top down. This is the sin bin being engineered from the top down through society like a cancer. Interesting. Someone pointed out to me a few weeks ago that uh, the the left, and I'm sorry to put this in political terms, but the the hardcore cultural Marxists who are trying to uh, you know to foist this on us and, and to say, well, no, 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 drag queen story time, that is totally normal behavior. 
they are very determined to separate us from our freedoms. And, and one of the b- things that they used to bribe us to give up our freedoms is that to, in return, we can have one freedom, and that is the freedom to act out sexually however we want. Everything else, though, is gone. Yeah, I know, and that's kind of an interesting thought that's crossed my mind in varying degrees, too. It's like, okay, about the only thing, about the only true freedoms that people have left is aborting children and having sex when it feels good, and that's about it. Bingo. And that's that's the unfortunate mess we find ourselves in. Yeah, you said it well, Sam. That's all I got, Brian. God bless. Okay, thanks. You have a great day. 801-331-8113. Here's an article on intellectualtakeout.org. This is from Chuck Schalberg. What explains modern hostility to the family? And I like that he starts with a quote from G.K. Chesterton. If you haven't read Chesterton, the guy is a, is a remarkable thinker, but there's just there's so much substance to what he has to say. I, I, I'm grateful for individuals like G.K. Chesterton who, who took seriously they're they're charged to to write and think well chesterton said without the family we are helpless before the state and to this chuck schalberg says uh, the political left then and now understands the truth of that line how else to explain their hostility to the family now he says wait Hostility to the family? Isn't the left always touting its support of working families as well as modern definitions of families? Yes, and yes. So how about this? How else can one explain their hostility toward the traditional nuclear family of a husband, wife, and children? See, apparently some of Chesterton's contemporaries expressed this same hostility toward the nuclear family. One of them was a woman named Emma Goldman. A committed anarchist, Goldman held out for an ideal society of atomized individuals. As an anarchist, she was also anti-statist to her core. In 1917, Goldman's anarchism led her to favor the Bolshevik Revolution until she witnessed the Soviet Union at work. Expelled from the United States during the Red Scare of 1919, she was deported to Lenin's Russia. Once there, it didn't take this anti-statist anarchist long before she could see that the Soviet Union was an experiment in totalitarianism rather than anarchism. She abandoned Lenin's Russia but never abandoned her opposition to the nuclear family. More than that, it never seems to have dawned on her that a society of atomized individuals would inevitably call a powerful state into being. Now, of course, Chesterton and the left of his day and ours have never been in total disagreement. All parties intuitively know that humans are different from other living beings. We may not all agree that we're made in the image of God, but we are all quite aware of what Chesterton called a fact of natural history, namely that we are the only creatures who require an extended period of education. That fact, however, is the end of agreement and the beginning of much disagreement. Two questions that provoke considerable difference of opinion should spring to mind immediately. What should be the content of a child's education? And who should do the educating? Now, Chesterton presumed that parents should always be the primary educators. And in making his case, he reminds his readers that humans are not like herring. or also not like elephants or termites. So what was his point? <laughs> There's much more to this article. We're going to come back to it in just a few moments. Again, if you'd like to add your comments, you can do so by calling 801-331-8113. This is Loving Liberty. 
Welcome back to Loving Liberty. We are talking about uh, what explains the modern hostility to the family. I think it's an excellent question, and I love that uh, the author here, uh, this is on intellectualtakeout.org, Chuck Schalberg, is uh, leaning heavily on G.K. Chesterton and some of his observations. And I think just because Chesterton was a pretty solid thinker, it's, it's worth considering. And the questions that we have, who should, or what should be the content of a child's education? Who should do the educating? Chesterton always thought, well, it's the parents who should be the primary educators. After all, we're not raising a bunch of herring, right? The author says, untouched by the modern stunt of birth control, the herring lays thousands of eggs in a single day. And why not? After all, the herring doesn't have to bother educating its young. If only because the duties of its young are very simple and largely instinctive. Now here, Chuck Schalberg says Chesterton Chesterton might be charged with advancing a mistaken analogy. He contends that the herring, as a non as non educator, was an evidence of modern phenomenon. But moderns are educators. Once again, it's not a matter of educating or not educating. It's who is doing the educating and what is being taught. Now, true, Chesterton realized that male and female herring were quite free to model their union on very modern notions of marriage and divorce. The female herring could say to the male herring, true marriage must be free from the dogmas of priests. It must be a thing of one exquisite moment. And the male herring might reply, when love has died in the heart, marriage is a mockery in the home. Well, Chesterton then went on to express his concern that too many parents of his generation were too much like the herring of any generation. Well, yes and no. Unlike the herring, parents do bother with education, but today's parents are inclined to let others do most of the bothering. Chesterton could certainly see this coming. After all, even then, parents were too content to leave their children on the doorstep of the State Department for Education and Universal Social Adjustment. And in so doing, parents were preparing the way for the role of the family to be taken over by the state. Ouch. Does that not even sting a little bit? Come on. There's a ring of truth to it, though, right? And this is why some parents are all too glad. Well, I'm glad that the state has taken over comprehensive sex education for my child because, frankly, it's just it's too embarrassing. I don't I don't know what to say. How could I do this? I don't want to have that talk for crying out loud. My kids are giving me the talk. Yeah, that's because they're it's <laughs> because they're being educated in, in government run schools and they're being taught a lot of things that uh, namely you're you're supposed or you're presumed to be out of touch on. See, for Chesterton, all of this was too entirely too consistent with the vague and drifting centralization of his time. The drift was in the direction of turning the state into a big benevolent grandmother. To Chesterton, the state was little more than a delusion and a dangerous delusion at that. Besides, education was the task of handing down a culture. Chesterton wisely thought that such handing down was best done within families rather than imposed by the state. All of this is rooted in the tradition of marriage. Are you connecting the dots here? Chesterton reminded his readers that marriage initiated the only voluntary state on earth. It is the only real state that creates and loves its citizens. If such states were to flourish, a family, if a family remained a family, Chesterton was confident that each of its members could survive all the vast changes, all of the deadlocks and disappointments, which made up mere political history. But if not, 
trouble loomed. If the family fails, Chesterton cautioned, it is as certain as death that the state will fail its members. Who might those members be but the atomized individuals celebrated by the likes of Emma Goldman then and so many others today? Again, this is from Chuck Schalberg, writing from Bloomington, Minnesota. I've kind of wondered about that myself, you know, about uh, the, the hostility toward the family. And as I look at some of the cultural shifts that are taking place, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to try not to be crass in de- describing this, be- but uh, at the same time, I feel like I need to spell out just how far have we sunk. We have seen just within the last 10 to 15 years a very decisive shift from, hey, look, gays just want to be left alone. They don't want to be picked on. They don't want to be persecuted, too. They just want the same rights as everybody else, which they already have. But, you know, they want to be singled out and pronounced special in terms of the exercise of these rights to, well, now we just want marriage equality. Now we want marriage. And, and, and as each of these things has been given by government, as each of these little equality by edict milepost has been passed, the goalpost moves. Now we're getting to the point where there's there's this gender dysphoria and there's there's gender confusion and 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 what do we do? Well, we need to we need to captivate policy here and punish people who use improper pronouns or punish people who turn their nose up at the idea of, you know, a man walking into the women's restroom or, you know, teenage girls who identify as boys showering, you know, with other high school athletes who are not of the same biological sex. Oh, even saying that, see, I'm running afoul of some, you know, some uh, political correctness here. But it's but it's gone even further. Look at the case up in Canada. A guy who identifies as a woman wants to go have an intimate waxing procedure done to remove unwanted body hair. The trouble is the salon that he goes to primarily does this on women. It's young women who are performing the waxing procedure, but he says, no, no, I have a right to force you to do this on me. Sorry, that's as graphic as I'm going to get, but did you ever think that what started with, we just want to be left alone, would be turned to, you have to deal with my most intimate parts by law. I mean, that's a pretty big escalation over bake the cake, Colorado baker. And the worst part about it is it's not just the governmental laws that seem to be enforcing this. Look at the corporations that are woke. That's that's the terminology. Are you are you woke? Meaning, are you sufficiently awake that you can see the value of of showing what that you're a good person? I mean, for crying out loud, the city of St. George following in the footsteps of other cities, which apparently it wants to be just like is hanging gay pride banners everywhere throughout the city. And some people celebrate this as, oh, look, love wins. This is, this is proof that the city loves. And um, I, I agree with, uh, with my friend Kate Daly that a flag isn't an indication of whether or not I'm capable of loving or treating people decently. In fact, truth be told, you know what those those flags represent or those banners represent? It's it's the world's biggest virtue signal hung out there for everybody to see. 
Look at me. Look how righteous I am. Look how caring and inclusive I am, how I celebrate diversity. Well, what did he do? You know how I like to celebrate it? I don't like to hang out a flag. I just, uh, I just go ahead and live my life, and I treat people the way that I would want to be treated. So if you're saying, well, that's not showing love, or that's not, uh, that's not showing acceptance. Love and acceptance are not the same thing. I can love somebody completely. I can love somebody with the purest, most Christ-like love ever without accepting behavior or actions that, that I cannot find acceptable. I can love the drug addict without accepting the idea that, well, you know, drugs must be pretty cool. So, hey, yeah, knock yourself out. That's what real tolerance is, is being kind to one another. It doesn't mean you embrace everything that everybody else thinks or you speak exactly the way everybody else wants you to speak or anything like that. Look how far things have been pushed. This is the drag queen story time for crying out loud. That is it would have been unthinkable even 10 years ago for people to say, oh, yeah, well, uh, you know, you give me 10 years. We're going to have guys dressed up like women prancing around and performing for toddlers at the local library. And the expectation is they're going to do this and everybody is going to clap and applaud and go, oh, isn't it wonderful? Isn't it just, you know, the best thing ever? The only thing that's a little bit discouraging is that the, the people who naturally are like, ugh, I can't go along with that, are immediately labeled as well. You are insensitive. You are intolerant. You are bigoted. Which at this point is just words, okay? People who believe in word magic trying to throw labels out there and using fearful, scary-sounding labels to try to distract from the reality of the person is just going, my standards won't let me go there. Which is not a hateful thing. But it definitely shows discrimination between right and wrong. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 